Hello, it's David here. Before we start, I wanted to say thanks to all of you for listening and those who have shared this podcast with your friends. We're getting our biggest audiences so far, and that's pretty much all down to you. So please do continue to tell people about The Leader and subscribe, rate and comment through your favourite podcast provider. And if you want to tell us you've done it or tell us what you like and don't like about us, you can use the hashtag The Leader Podcast. It makes a big difference. Thank you. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland. Criminal gangs are flying into the UK to rob wealthy people's houses and flying straight back out again. As soon as they arrive at the airport, they're given cars and a mobile phone and they're told which properties to go and to burgle. The Evening Standard's crime correspondent Anthony France tells us about the operation. As the newspaper reveals, Crystal Palace star Mamdou Sako is the latest victim. Also, they're really bad, actually. Um, it's the fifth month on the trot that um, the, the retail sales total has, has fallen. We've never had that before. Jonathan Prynne on the bloodbath on the high street as Christmas fails to sparkle for retailers. And all musicals need to be refreshed or revisited. Les Miserables has been given a gritty reboot. Will the people still sing? We ask our chief theatre critic, Nick Curtis. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is The Leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, a Premier League football star's home has been raided. We look at the international gangs stalking the rich and famous. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. Evening standards revealed Crystal Palace star Mamadou Sako's home in London has been raided in a half-million-pound robbery. It follows four people being convicted of breaking into Chef Marcus Waring's house last year. Both properties are in Wimbledon. Residents there are worried they're being targeted by burglary tourists. That's criminal gangs who fly into the country to rob wealthy homes. The same area had been hit by the Wimbledon prowler, Hasdra Kapage, who was jailed last year after admitting a series of break-ins going back to 2008. But our editorial column says the crime raises wider concerns for everyone. The disclosure by this newspaper that the home of a Crystal Palace footballer has become the latest target of a burglary might seem at first like a story from a different world. It's obvious burglaries like this have eye-catching features that grab attention. But what's more important is they illustrate a bigger problem, affecting rich and poor across the capital, and the trauma that such unpleasant crimes inflict. 
The latest Met crime figures show there were only fractionally fewer than 60,000 residential burglaries across London last year, slightly down on the year before, but still far too many. Even worse are statistics showing fewer than 2,000 of the crimes have been solved so far. Intensive efforts can go into tracking down the serial burglars who carry out many of these crimes. But as the high level of offending indicates, the police still need to redouble their efforts to bring more offenders to justice. Our crime correspondent, Anthony France, is covering the story. And Anthony, what do we know about this latest case involving Mamadou Sako? So this is probably the worst news that the, um, the the residents of Wimbledon Village could expect, just as they thought that the Wimbledon Prowler had been caught after 10 years. Now comes a, uh, uh, well, our professional burglars who are coming into the country from South America um, specifically to target uh, the homes of wealthy people. In this particular case, it's a footballer. Um, who is staying at a house which he's rented off uh, Nicholas Anelka, uh, the former Chelsea and Arsenal player. Um, and at some point um, on December the 27th, two men broke into the house um, and stole half a million pound worth of property uh, from the uh, from his home. The police have made an appeal um, and they've appealed for anybody who knows uh, a woman who was seen on CCTV to come forward. So we don't know specifics of this particular crime, but it does appear as if these gangs are very well organised. They seem to know when people aren't going to be around. Very much, yeah. And and probably, probably um, in a way that the Wimbledon Prowler himself um, operated, as in these are people are known to uh, the police here. Usually they are flown into the country. Uh, they're not even on the police radar. As soon as they arrive at the airport, they're given cars and a mobile phone and they're told which properties to go and... Uh, burgle and in fact they've even taken to putting orange dots outside the houses of uh, houses that should be targeted so they're coming in specifically to commit these crimes they're being flown into the uk and then and then then flown flown straight back out as well yeah yeah and of course this is um this is tragic for um, the anelka family as as well because of course their house was targeted by the uh, wimbledon prowler and uh, mr anelka actually chased him off uh, from his uh, back garden and this presumably makes it extremely hard to catch these people. It does make it extremely cop yeah. Um, I mean, they were looking, in, in, in terms of the Marcus Waring case, uh, it was actually Surrey police uh, who picked up the uh, individuals um, and they were all, given, the four guys were given 40 months um, in jail this week. And when they were picked up, those individuals, um, they had some evidence on them, as I understand it. That's right, yeah. They, um, they'd actually taken pictures of themselves with uh, the celebrity chefs um, jewellery that they stole during the raid. So is there a wariness now among you know places like Wimbledon Village that this could happen again? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, there is um, a huge amount of wealth in that area and obviously now with uh, yet another burglary of a celebrity in that area, people will really want to be aware of things, so there are th- many things that people can do. Um, you know, for example, uh, make sure you get a burglar alarm and uh, CCTV and, and things like that. And also, you know, make sure you lock your doors um, when you go out, and and you know, basically make your house look um, as if somebody is there. You know, by putting lights on and stuff like that. And of course, don't post your holiday pictures and don't, on and don't Instagram. Post, and don't post holiday pictures on Instagram and tell everybody that you're away. Next, 
The city has been expecting that with the election results um, being so decisive in the middle of December, we'd see a little bit of recovery from that and a bit of a retail Boris bounce, maybe, for want of a better phrase. But it hasn't happened. Jonathan Prynne on a grim Christmas for retailers. "'Twas the night before Christmas and no one was in the shops, apparently. Well, not very many people. Retail sales fell for the fifth month in a row in December, and that's after the British retail consortiums already said that 2019 was the worst year since 1995. I've come into the Evening Standards newsroom to talk to our consumer business editor, Jonathan Prynne, who's been looking at the figures. Jonathan, how bad are they? They're really bad, actually. Um, it's the fifth month on the trot that um, the, the retail sales total has, has fallen. We've never had that before. So we're into um, unprecedented territory. Uh, it comes at the end of what was already a pretty bad year for the high streets. Um, and I think most, I think the city was caught on the hop slightly by these figures. They were expecting a slight rise because the month in question includes Black Friday, which you would normally expect to give something of a boost to the numbers. So yeah, they're, they're messy, they're bad. But why? It's, an on, it's been an ongoing trend all year. Consumers um, have been feeling uh, like they want to sit on their, on their savings a little bit. We've been living through very uncertain times. In uncertain times, people tend to spend less. They tend to go for safety first, build up their, their own financial resources, save a bit. But I think the city has been expecting that with the election results um, being so decisive in the middle of December, we'd see a little bit of recovery from that and a bit of a retail Boris bounce, maybe, for want of a better phrase. But it hasn't happened. Um, it may be just that it's going to take a few months for people to start to unwind and think, OK, maybe it is safe to go back and uh, spend, spend, spend again, but we're, we're a long way from that at the moment. Is there anything the retailers can do then apart from sit and wait and hope it goes back up? Um, <clears throat> probably not a lot. Uh, they can, I mean, they can always improve their offering, improve, um, improve their products. Um, consumers seem to be very much in a mood for experiences as well as just stuff when they go out shopping so they can make shops more interesting exciting fun places to be uh, there is a slight um, longer term trend going on that, that generally consumers particularly younger consumers seem to have decided that they've got enough stuff uh, and they want what they want out of life is experiences rather than just ever more increasing um, consumer durables so to make shopping more of a fun experience is, is probably all they can hope to do, really. Now. One more day you're on my There was a time when fans were kind, when their voices were soft and their words were inviting. But that was 35 years ago, and there was no Twitter when Les Miserables first exploded like a French revolutionary cannon into London's theatre scene. Rebooting a precious musical in the age of social media is a gamble, but that's what Cameron McIntosh has done with a gritty revamp just unveiled to the press. Our chief critic Nick Curtis was among the people who heard them sing. Nick, did it need a reboot? It probably did. I think Cameron McIntosh, the producer, would probably say that all musicals need to be refreshed or revisited uh, at some stage in um, in the course of their history. I mean, certainly for something that's been running as long as this one has, uh, it, it, it probably did need a, a new, a fresh set of eyes on it. I can imagine that there were a lot of people a little bit wary about changing anything in Les Miserables, but you've given it four stars? Yes, I have. It's got a slightly grittier edge now. 
it was very much a sort of product of the 80s originally, I think, uh, in its in its styling and in its staging. Um, it's been through various different iterations since, and this version is based on a touring production uh, that started out, I think, about 10 years ago. And for all that people are very... Um, possessive of the musical fans are very possessive of their favorite musicals i think most of them are quite interested if uh, if if things are sort of switched up once in a while they're quite interested in seeing new people going into into the roles quite interested to see if they're redesigned or you're restaged in some way so yes has it still got the the kind of the the signature les miserables soaring tunes that that kind of 80s feel to it yeah they haven't uh, uh, certainly they haven't changed a note of the score as far as i'm aware um and it does have it does sort of switch between those hearty pounding anthems and uh, then those those big sort of front of stage solos New cast, any good? Yes, they are. Uh, the show really belongs to John Robbins, who is this powerful, charismatic, leonine, grizzled Jean Valjean, this underdog hero who uh, starts out as a convict in the uh, rowing in a ship and uh, becomes the mayor of a town and then ends up uh, manning the barricades in the uh, 1830 Paris uprising. You say in your review that they've gone back to the source material, Victor Hugo's uh, original paintings. Yeah, I didn't know Victor Hugo was also a painter, and apparently neither did Cameron McIntosh. He showed a few of us round the theatre before the show last night, and uh, he just said one of his colleagues came up to him and said, Victor Hugo did 400 paintings based on Les Miserables. Do you want to have a look at them? And uh, they're quite gloomy, um, so they sort of contribute to this this new grittier mood for uh, for the piece. There's lots of dark satanic towers and uh, crucifixes looming out of the background, and some rather good projections of the sewers when uh, Valjean is escaping with Marius. My place is here. I fight. Not just the production itself that's been given a refit, the theatre, the Queen's Theatre, its new home, how's that looking? Well, the Sondheim Theatre, as it's now, is now called, it was, um, it was the Queen's Theatre, uh, been renamed by, uh, by Cameron Mackintosh, post-refurbishment to honour Stephen Sondheim, the great American composer, uh, many of whose shows Mackintosh has mounted. Um, and it's beautiful, what can I say? The Queen's was always a bit of a misfit on Shaftesbury Avenue because it was hit by a bomb in 1940 which took out the back of the stalls and most of the front of the theatre. It was then empty for 20 years um, and rebuilt in 1959 uh, with basically a sort of glass and steel frontage, which is nice in some ways in that it lets in a lot of light to the front of the theatre, which is quite unusual in those West End playhouses. Uh, but it wasn't really welcoming inside. Uh, that rebuild, strangely, was grade two listed, so Macintosh had to work within that. Um, it was built as part of a, an entire block with the Gilgood, what's now the Gilgood Theatre by WGR Sprague, one of the two great Edwardian Victorian theatre architects. Um, and there was a void between the two, which they've now filled in and built 32 new women's loos. But they've really done a remarkable job, um, and the plaster work that's been restored, and particularly 
the painting of the dome and the uh, reliefs in the dome are absolutely gorgeous. How did the crowd react at the end? Uh, I mean, there's a press crowd that was there, so clearly they're all very cynical, cynical uh, journalists. But well, I w- there was an awful lot of whooping, uh, and uh, most of your your average um, press crowd doesn't tend to do that. So I think there were quite a lot of fans in as well, and I think they invited a lot of people who had been involved in in the show over the course of thirty years. That's a an amazing school really of, of musical theatre for people who have passed through that production um, I imagine quite a lot of them were there last night I was sat next to Esther Ranson last night as well How was Esther Ranson enjoying oh, it? Oh she was looking very very chic, chic and trim Was she singing yes. along next? Uh, no I have to say she wasn't Angela it, Rippon was there I don't know if she was singing along either She should be dancing surely Yeah So Les Miserables at the Sondheim still a belting night out And that's the leader. Subscribe through your podcast provider and please share, like, comment, tell your friends. We'd love to see them when we're back on Monday at 4.